Thank you, Johnny. That's, uh, that's quite a, quite a send-off. Johnny is my sponsor. And, uh, he's been a, he's been a, <clears throat> a good one. Uh, Johnny and I, uh, used to have a couple of things in common. One was we had an enormous thirst, and then we had, uh, some preoccupation with sex. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, now we've got, we've got a couple of things in common, uh, over 20 years of sobriety, and, uh, a bunch of grandchildren as a result of that preoccupation of sex. And, uh, here a while back, uh, Pat and I uh, kept two of our, our two boys uh, of our son. Uh, we kept them a month one week, and uh, <laughs> we... Uh, We were in the process of taking them home, and we stopped from Austin. We were going to up to Dallas, and we stopped in uh, Temple to see a friend of ours, Don L., who's a member of the program. And he asked us where we were going, and I told him that we were going to take these grandkids home. And I wanted to get back to the point of wondering how they were getting along instead of knowing for sure. <laughs> Johnny's been kind of, they've been riding herd on a couple of theirs. And, uh, so uh, we can identify in the, in the grandchildren department. We can identify in uh, so many ways. Johnny and I can. He's been a great comfort and a source of strength to me for now over 20 years. Because I drank too much too often too long, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Jack. And uh, because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous works one day at a time in my life, and because God does things for me through AA that I could never do for myself, I haven't had to drink since the 13th day of October, 1962. And I'm not proud of that at all, but I'm eternally grateful for the fact that I haven't had to drink. Thank you, Jim and Vinoy and the committee for inviting uh, us to be here. You'll hear my wife in the morning. You're going to hear by far the better half. And uh, she tells a fantastically good story, and she's done the, done the things that she talks about. And I'm so, uh, I so admire the Al-Anon. for voluntarily doing the things that I'm prompted to do because I've got a death sentence hanging over my head. And that's the only reason that I uh, do the things that, I, that I've had to do in order to stay sober is because I, that death sentence always hangs over my head. But she, uh, just because she wanted to get better than she was, has done the things that we've all done, taken the steps. And practice these principles in all of our affairs. And she's quite a brave little gal. She's hurting pretty bad. She's got a bad back, and she just spent a week in the hospital a short time before we came up. And she's been a great source of strength and comfort to me during the past 20 years plus in helping me stay sober because she's gone the route the same as I have. I'd hated to abs 
tried to make it on my own with no with no partner to walk uh, by my side. Now I wish you'd stand up, Pat, and let them see who you are. And she's also lost a bunch of weight, and she's mighty pretty. And it's much easier for me to tell her from up here than it is from, from in her presence for some reason or other. But uh, she's, uh, she's been on a diet with me, and I'm, I'm again, losing uh, weight at the doctor's suggestion because apparently I have a little bit of high blood, blood sugar. And uh, here again, I am uh, prompted to do the very thing by reason of the fact that, uh, that Death. He does voluntarily, so I, I stand in complete awe of the Alanai. And God bless them because they're the very thing that really makes it a work. Um, I haven't always been sick. I, uh, I was well at one time in my life. It happened long about the time I was eight or nine years old, and I, <laughs> and, uh, I, didn't get to, I didn't get started on the process of getting sick until I was nine to ten years old. <laughs> and uh, I did that by, by learning a whole lot of things that I would have been better off uh, not to have ever learned. And... Uh, because knowledge tends to puff up, you know, and, and it made me begin to think of myself. But when I was eight or nine, I, uh, I liked folks. I was very uh, cognizant of everyone's welfare, and I liked everyone else, and I didn't have to think about myself. I was not worried about myself. Uh, everything seemed to be kind of going my way. And uh, the more I seemed to worry about everybody else, the more everybody seemed to worry about me, and everything seemed to be going fine. And uh, people would tell me things that might be to sound a little bit ridiculous, and I'd believe them. And uh, and people began to tell me that, Jack, you're foolish. You're a very foolish boy. You, uh, you have to realize that people will lie to you. They're going to take advantage of you. And some of the charm went out of my life. I didn't, uh, I didn't like that. I, I liked the idea of just believing wholeheartedly what anybody said, trusting absolutely without any mental reservation or secret evasion of mind or anything, just being enamored with life. And, you know, I've, I've fought back on those times and wondered how I was hurt by people lying to me or maybe breaking the trust. And I can't for the life of me figure out how that people hurt me by doing that so long as I believed in them. But it's only when I began to cease to believe in people and, uh, and I learned unspiritual truths. I think when I was eight or nine years old, I was living a spiritual life. And I think there the... When I began to get away from the spiritual life, I began to adopt the very things that is the basic reason for this meeting here, is the spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. And there I was living it back at the time I was eight or nine, and yet people with better minds than me, with more information than I had, told me I was foolish. 
And now through the process of AA, I've had to come back to the point of trying my very best to go back and approach the condition that I lived at the time that I was eight or nine. And the closer that I get to it, the more comfort and peace and serenity it brought into my life. And how all of these things came about is a is a story that I uh, am going to try to to relate to you. You know, we don't we don't instantaneously change our minds except it in faced with a crisis. We don't enthusiastically adopt a change in attitude just instantaneously unless it's a real crisis. There was there was this guy by the name of Pritchett who was a who was a railroad depot agent and uh, he was at the end of the line of this uh, of this railroad and uh, one time the president and vice president of the road came down to spend the weekend and do some hunting at the end of the track and it was in January and it was cold and so they uh, the vice president decided he'd go down and and see the train come in and be turned around and, and go back and kind of observe what went on at the, at the end of track. So he did, and he went down there, and there was a bunch of passengers sitting in the waiting room, and they were all shivering. It's cold. There was no fire in the stove. And this vice president could hear the clack of the clack of the, tele, of the telegraph key back in the back, and he went back and said, uh, Pritchett said, well, why don't you get up there and build these folks a fire? said, they're cold. And Mr. Pritchett didn't even pause. He said, I'm too damn busy sending telegrams to build no fire. Oh, well, then send this telegram. So his vice president sat down and wrote out a telegram and uh, handed it over to Pritchett and went back into the waiting room. About this time, Pritchett busted through the back door, had kindling stuff in his pocket and had a cold scuttle in his hand, and he was heading to the stove. So the vice president asked him, said, Pritchett, did you send that telegram? He says, I'm too damn busy building fire to send no telegram. <laughs> but that man had an instantaneous change of mind uh, as a result of a crisis. And, and this, this is kind of what it took for me is to get down to the point where whiskey didn't any longer work. If whiskey had continued to work for me as I thought it had for so many years, I wouldn't be here tonight. I'd still be drinking. I never wanted to give up drinking whiskey. I loved the effects of it. I, I just loved the effects of feeling drunk. That was a blissful feeling to me. I could take one drink of whiskey and all worries in the world passed away. And I felt so comfortable and serene and so forth and so devilishly smart. Handsome and everything else. Everything was working when I took a drink or so of whiskey. But my mother and father used to argue a lot about uh, about religion, and uh, my father professed to be an agnostic. My uh, my mother uh, was rather religious, and I didn't really know what to believe. And uh, I sometimes thought that my mother was right. I sometimes thought that my father was right. And my father had a, a, a enormously attractive way of expressing himself, and uh, he had quite an he had quite an intelligent mind, and he was well-read, although he's not well-educated, but he was well-read, and, and 
he had a good command of the English language and he could, he could express ideas and feelings uh, to me as a, as a kid very well, much better than my mother could. He, he had a rather soft voice and a pleasant demeanor. My mother uh, kind of tended to be a little bit on the shrill side, particularly when she became emotional or excited about something. And uh, consequently, I kind of leaned to my dad because I, I liked the way his voice came through to me and kind of caressed me, whereas my mother seemed to kind of aggravate me and set me on edge a little bit. And so this had something to do with, with the way I thought. But I basically really thought that my mother probably, if the truth were known, were right. My dad then began to drink excessively, and he finally became a town drunk there in Petersburg, Texas, where I was born and grew up. And uh, he was an embarrassment to my mother and my brother and me. And, and he, uh, we were ashamed of him. I was, and I so desperately wanted to fit in somewhere. And I, I wanted to fit into the group of my peers there in Petersburg. And while I felt a little bit wrong about it, I, when, my, when they would make fun of my father, I would join with him, and I would make fun of him also. And I laughed at old Lib. And I used to talk to him, and I'd curse him, and uh, I'd say things that I, I've been very ashamed of, although I've had an opportunity to, to make amends to him, but they still hurt to remember back and to kind of relive as I'm trying to do now. This thing that I went through. But I wanted also to fit in with my peers more so, I suppose, than I did to fit in with my father because it became easier and easier to laugh at him and to scorn him and to uh, rebuke him and to denounce him and speak down at him. And, and I used to ask him, I, I said, why don't you quit? And uh, he said, all you have to do is just not drink. And he said, well, you make it sound so easy. I said, it is. All you got to do is just put the plug in the jug. And he said, well, he said, I wish it were as simple as that. And, of course, he wasn't capable of explaining to me what was wrong because he was what was wrong. It wasn't the fact that anything was wrong with the family. My mother had other thoughts. I think she sometimes thought she was wrong because my father heaped condemnation on her, I think, in order to protect himself, as so many of us did. <clears throat> but I swore then that if I ever drank, uh, and I had done a little bit of drinking with my father, which with impunity because nothing really happened, I never did feel anything from drinking. I was to later on feel something from, uh, from drinking. But then the situation, when I was about 16, the situation happened which convinced me that my father had been right and my mother had been wrong. But <clears throat> there was a preacher there, a, a preacher in the, in the city of Petersburg that uh, had been having some uh, illicit relations with one of the town ladies that I knew about, and, and I'd really never given it any particular thought up until the time that he struck me in front of the bank building there in Petersburg and told me in 
when I was with a group of my friends that said, Jack, you'd be a very good boy if you would just come to church. And that was the first time in my life that I'd ever hated anybody, but I hated that man at that point in time. He, uh, and I knew instantly that my father was right. The church people really weren't to be trusted. My father had told me that. He said, anybody that'll, uh, that's a staunch church member, he's gone there for, for an illicit purpose. They're not going there to become better. They're going there to hide things from the public. They'll cheat you in a horse trade on Monday. So I adopted the beliefs that I'd heard my father expouse, and uh, I didn't want to have anything to do with church people, and I denounced them at every opportunity. And preachers I openly despised, and I wanted nothing to do with any of them. And that lasted for many, many, many years. So this happened when I was about 16, and I had a change of personality. I found out that hatred gave you quite a bit of of power, of strength that I had not had before. I found out that in anger there was quite a lot of of uh, resources and so forth. I found that it was much easier to to apply the training that I'd been given when I was 10 years old to not trust and to use ridicule and sarcasm to keep people at a, at a proper distance. And my life became more complicated, and as it became more complicated, it became less satisfactory. And uh, then when I drank, my life then was more satisfactory and less complicated. So I drank to change the way I felt. And when I took some drinks when I was 16 years old, the magic started, and I really loved it. So much so that by 18, I was told by a doctor that I had an alcoholic heart and that I wouldn't uh, live more than six months if I didn't quit drinking. So I quit quit drinking uh, there for uh, a month. Year <laughs> <laughs> in 1938. And uh, <coughs> up until the time that they were having a street dance down there in Petersburg, and it was July the 4th, and uh, and I remember Bunch and Madeline sitting out in the audience were there in Petersburg, and they were two of the ones out there dancing, having a very good time. And uh, a couple of their brothers, and there was a couple of Bunch's brothers and their wives were also out there. And I remember another guy by the name of Alf Scarborough, who's not a, an alcoholic, but he was about 6'5", and... Uh, and he sweat like a monster, but boy, he was a dancing dude. And, uh, and I looked at all those folks, and they were having a good time, you know, and I'd see them cut out around the back of the car and come back with a big old face to grin on their face. And I thought, now, by gosh, that's living. What I'm doing here ain't, ain't doing anything but just surviving. And if this is living, then I don't want to get on with it now. So I went and got me some whiskey, and I drank. I don't know what happened, but I didn't uh, die. I didn't get to be an invalid. I didn't do anything for uh, within six months. But I, I continued to drink, and I remember that uh, I thought, what a great reprieve. I can live again now. 
went into the army, had a lot of trouble, came up here to Fort Shell, Oklahoma in January 1942. It was cold. Once I was run over to, uh, to the beer hall and drank a bunch of beer. And, uh, and uh, we were sleeping in preamble tents. <clears throat> when I got back to the uh, tent, I thought, by golly, I ought to... I ought to go to the bathroom, but I decided against it, and when I woke up the next morning, I realized I made a bad decision. <laughs> <clears throat> and so things happened to me here in Fort Sale, a little bit of uh, drinking. But this was just the price that you paid for the drinking, and, uh, and I was willing to pay it. It wasn't very much of a price to pay for the, uh, for the fun that I had, or that I perceived that I was having in the peace of mind and tranquility that drinking brought into my life. And uh, one time over in Germany, we were fighting a war, and I got drunk about 8 o'clock one morning off of something. I don't know what it was, but it worked. And uh, that night I woke up, somebody was, uh, was uh, shaking me. And I woke up, and I could hear this grunting, and I, it sounded strangely like hogs. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, that's what it was. I'd been asleep in the hog bin there, and... Uh, and the guy got me up to go and, and appear before the captain. I was, a, I was a lieutenant at that time in the infantry. And uh, so I walked in there. I had a match in my mouth and a cigarette in hand. I was trying my best to light up that cigarette. And he told me I was drunk. And, of course, I denied that just hands down. And, wasn't anything wrong with me. I was just tired because, after all, we'd been fight, fighting war all day, and I didn't have the slightest idea what we'd been doing all day because it was about 11 o'clock at night, and I didn't remember anything since 8 o'clock that morning. But we had been uh, fighting war all day long, and I was completely oblivious. That should shake people up, and it, uh, I guess it did me, but I don't remember it very well. I don't remember it shaking me up. Next time I got an opportunity to drink, I drank because I wanted to change up the way I felt. I just didn't ever like the way I felt about life. I didn't like the way I felt about people. I liked the way I felt about life. I liked the way I felt about people when I was drinking. Sobriety was my enemy. Drunkenness was a friend. And I loved it. And I'll say again, I'd still be doing it if it worked like it did at one time. If it worked even as well as it did then, I'd still be doing it. When I got home, uh, Pat and I started going out together, and I, uh, I kind of had a premonition that something was fixing to happen. And uh, sure enough, I, so I, I, I told her, I said, Now, Pat, there's two things I like to do. I like to work and I like to drink. I only lied about one of those. I didn't really like to work. I just had to to, to afford to be able to drink the way I wanted to. But I even thought at that time that I liked to work. But uh, I said, now, if you think you can take part in something like that, well, let's get on with this married. And she thought she could, so I got me a 19-year-old to train. And I trained her well in how to, how to drink the first. We, uh, we drank in Petersburg. We turned up the bottle and followed it with a drink of Coke. And that was a real sophisticated drinking, and uh, that's what we knew over there at Petersburg, Texas. And I know the first time I... We went over to New Mexico, and we went into a bar where they had ready-mixed drinks, you know, and so she ordered a drink. She probably will tell you about it. I don't know. But 
since I've already started, I guess I just well finish it up. <laughs> she ordered a, a drink and uh, he asked her if she wanted next or if she wanted on the side. Well, she decided she wanted on the side, so. He brought her a glass of seven up and a jigger of whiskey. And she poured the jigger of whiskey in the seven up. And I said, why, why didn't she order a highball? She didn't really know what that was. She said, well, you know, said, you have to watch these bartenders. So they don't always just give you a full jigger. But <laughs> that's, a, that's the first kind of information I had that she might sometime have a drinking problem. <laughs> And I think if I could have held out two more weeks that, uh, that she might have come in on the alcoholic side with me because <laughs> she was doing a pretty good job of uh, drinking. And she didn't much like sobriety when, when I first got sober either. She liked me sober, but she wanted everything to go back like it used to be. It can't ever, uh, can't ever go back like that. We moved down to Houston. It was, uh, that was a good drinking arrangement because I went to work for a firm of... Uh, of insurance firm traveling all over the United States, and that was a beautiful job on expense account, and uh, uh, drinking was a part of it. And I had some problems along the, along the way, but none of these were were insurmountable. None of them gave me pause uh, uh, more than a uh, short period of time to think about the fact that I might have a problem drinking. Uh, I know one happened. Uh, I was out in Phoenix, Arizona, coming back from uh, about a three-week trip that I'd uh, started out. And uh, I was staying in the Westwood Hotel. And I got back to the hotel about midnight, and we'd been drinking all, all night long, and I was pretty drunk, and, and I went to bed. And I, I don't really know what transpired then for a while until I <clears throat> woke up out in the hall. I heard the door slam, and it kind of brought me to, and I suddenly realized it was my door. And I looked up and down the hall, and it was bare, and I looked down, and I was too. <laughs> and uh, I backed up and made a big razzoo against the door, trying to break it down, and the whole hotel shook, but the door held. And <laughs> heard this key rattle across the, the hall, and uh, so I shot down to the end of the hall and peeped around the corner, and uh, this guy's head shot out the door, and he kind of peeped down there, and we stood there and peeped at each other for a little while. And, and then uh, his head went back in. I made another razzoo, and the same thing happened. And uh, back down to the end of the hall, and a little bit more peeping. And about this time, I heard the elevator doors open, and I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm ruined now. I just began to see headlines in the paper. And the executive found naked in the halls of the Westwood Ho Hotel in, in Phoenix. And I, I thought, well, my, my career is shut down. And uh, it's two, two bellhops. And uh, so I said, don't ask no damn fool questions. Just go and get the key to the room. And so one of them went down to get the key to the room. So when they let me in, uh, neither one of those boys had to work for a while, I guarantee you. <laughs>
that that did worry me, and I didn't drink a drop for two days. <laughs> but when I got back into Houston from that trip, I uh, I uh, couldn't stand up. I was kind of down in my back, and uh, so the uh, I went to the doctor, and he said, "Well, uh, said I don't know whether you've ever seen anybody with cirrhosis of the liver or not, but." Uh, my advice to you is never drink another drop. So I uh, I quit for a year during August <laughs> of uh, 1956. <laughs> Up until the time that uh, I went down a road trip to represent the firm on a, on a Took the head of bunch of visiting firemen in the city of Houston, and uh, so the nurse there on the boat asked me, said, you're drinking coffee. I said, why aren't you drinking whiskey? And I said, well, the doctor told me to, that I better not do that anymore. She asked me who the doctor was, and I told her, and she said, well, you ought to go see my doctor. And I said, who's your doctor? She told me who her doctor was, and the fact that he was a diagnostician, and uh, so I went to see her doctor, and he asked me, how much whiskey do you drink? And I told him, honestly. He said, well, that's lots of whiskey. But he said, you know, I'll tell you what, I've never seen anybody die with cirrhosis of the liver that ate properly. And then he went ahead to tell me a whole bunch of stuff that I never did hear any of, because I'd already got the very answer that I wanted, uh, and that was that it was safe to drink so long as I ate. So I went and called the office and told them I wouldn't be in that day and went and got me some whiskey and then went to a restaurant and ate a good meal and got drunk. And <laughs> So I didn't have any more sobriety up until uh, August of 1962. But I didn't die with cirrhosis of the liver. I don't know why. Perhaps I did. But... In 1962, uh, Pat was making noises about leaving and so forth, and uh, and really and truly, I had been wondering for some time myself. I'd ask myself, look myself in the mirror, and ask myself when I was going to quit. And I think maybe tomorrow, may, maybe maybe tomorrow, I'm going to wake up, and things will be different, and I just won't have to drink. But I knew I had to drink that day. And this happened day after day after day. I was a daily drinker. And uh, so the time came, and I, I stayed sober for the eight days. And I finally asked Pat, I said, how long does this damn drought last? She said, go get some whiskey and get drunk. So I did, and uh, it lasted up until October of 62. And uh, I got on vodka. And that, uh, I'd never had any experience on vodka. I'd always been a whiskey drinker. And uh, it's my opinion that, that if we can just keep them damn Russians drinking vodka, <coughs> we kind of got things in hand with them. I just... Because <laughs> I, did, I didn't know I didn't, I, I couldn't ascertain what was happening to me, I'd, I'd start my hand to do one sort of a chore and he'd wind up by doing something different. And uh, 
I was old slow data running an elevator, grain elevator, and I had to stay there. And uh, all through the week, it kept hammering in my mind that there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. And I'd have to drink to get just steady enough to where I could write my name so I could sign checks, not drink as much as I wanted to because I knew that I'd get to where I couldn't again. And it was a very delicate time, and I, I, I know that, I, that it occurred to me over and over and over and over as I kept seeing my life pass before me. It was never going to get better. It was always just going to get worse. And I knew then what I had to do. And I went to Petersburg on Saturday afternoon and told my dad. I said, Pop, i got to have help. He said, uh, what's wrong? And I said, I've got to have help to quit drinking. He said, well, let's go in and tell your mother. So uh, we walked into the house, and he said, Ann, guess what? And my mother said, I haven't the faintest idea. And my dad said, our son's an alcoholic. My mother said, thank God. And that day, my father had been sober for exactly 14 years, six months, in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And all of the time that I had told myself that if I ever drank like my father, if I ever became an embarrassment to my children and to my wife, I certainly would not drink again. And I had no more ability to control what I did than my father had. My kids got to the point where when I came about, they didn't want to be there. They left home whenever I came in or they went to their rooms. And I saw it. I wasn't oblivious to what was going on. And yet I couldn't do anything about it. And I still can't really do anything about drinking because that's a choice that I lost somewhere along the way. I know that I'm an alcoholic and the choice has already been made for me that I'll drink again unless day by day I maintain a certain degree of spiritual condition. And that's the promise that I have. That's the salvation that's mine if I want to take it, if I want to. Continue to ask God's help each morning. But, you know, coming into AA, Johnny said I hit the ground running, and I did hit the ground running to meetings. We went to about six or seven every day. But I still had this God hang up, you know. And my father gave me the big book of AA, and I read over the point where he gets the first time that you run into God, you know, and that isn't very far in the book. And you can't read many paragraphs, you know, about it being a self-help program. It's, it's all together that we're, we're dependent upon something outside of ourselves. But I had this hang-up because I didn't want any part of God. I didn't want any part of people that had part of God. And I, and I was harking back to my old deal of the religious-osity, and I didn't want any part of that. And uh, so I fought against it, and I uh, didn't read the big book, but I did go to meetings. We talked to a lot of AA. We went to each other's house. Pat and I would get up at midnight at night, and I'd go over to the cafe and we'd drink coffee. And my car always turned to see me. I'd go down to the strip to the, the place to buy whiskey, but I always recovered, and we'd go to the place to get coffee. I was jicky. Nothing really changed about my life. None of the feelings that I had really changed although I worked on them. I really tried to bring about a change in my life, and I had no success. 
And then my sponsor, uh, at the behest of his sponsor, he went to, to a spiritual conference one time, and uh, my sponsor and my wife began to work on me. And, uh, you know, when your sponsor and your wife team up on you, you just well go ahead and surrender quick. <laughs> because uh, you're, you're just, you're fixing to lose the battle, so they took me down to Brownwood. And uh, lo and behold, to add insult to injury, there was a Baptist preacher on the program. <laughs> I thought, oh, oh, my God, they're fixing to run AA right now. And it was for the name of the four, John the four from out of Waco, Texas, and uh, he was a Baptist preacher at that time, and, and uh, he'd been on a lot of twelve-step calls with a lot of alcoholics from Waco and other places, working with people who were drunk. He kind of knew what he was talking about, but I didn't like that even being there. I didn't like that even uh, being on the program. I did enjoy the fellow who who uh, introduced him. And then John said, uh, he said some magical words. He said some things that's uh, destined to get the attention of an egotistical man that I was and tend to be yet. But he... uh, he said, we can't talk about God in the Baptist church. He said, we can talk about hard-shell Baptist, soft-shell Baptist, northern Baptist, southern Baptist, but we can't talk about God. But he said, I'm going to talk to you about God as I understand him. He said, I don't know whether you're going to hear me or not, but if you can't, nobody can. And I thought, at least, old buddy, you know the superior type of folks you're, you're addressing here tonight. <laughs> and uh, I began to kind of perk up and, uh, and listen to the man. And he told a story about having tried to run away from God. He got in his car and drove over to Alabama. And that's what he meant to do, was take a job over there from a friend of his. And the friend sent him back. Told him, said, you haven't gotten away from God. Said he's here in Alabama just like he is over in Texas. He told him to go back and do the thing he was supposed to do. So John turned around and came back to Texas. Continued to do the things he's supposed to do. And I'm sure he's doing the things he's supposed to do now because he's got a counseling service. But when he began to talk about God, it it kind of began to chip away a little bit at the wall I built up. But he said, God is in, the, is in you and in the person next to you. And he said, uh, if you've been forgiven by another person, you've been forgiven by God. And these things kind of made a little bit of sense to me. Took that thing about God being in you and the person next to you. Because in the war... I think all of us that, uh, that had an occasion to be in the war saw acts of heroism that were far beyond the individual's capacity to muster that kind of courage or self-sacrifice. When it gets down to the point where a person throws his life away 
for the benefit of buddies. It's not some long drawn out calculation that he's made. It's not some conclusion that he's reached throughout the process of using logic or reason. So I could understand that there was some power that motivated those folks beyond themselves. It took them over that hand grenade to protect the squad or the platoon. And I knew in AA that there was something that it caused people to uh, have compassion at times when Logic and reason wouldn't dictate the use of compassion. Logic and reason would have dictated the, uh, the use of sarcasm and ridicule and the age-old put-down to put that person in his place. And yet in AA I saw people uh, who were being verbally abused by the folks, feeling sad and sorry for those folks. And I knew that Something beyond those people motivated them to do it because I knew it just wasn't within the capacity of a human being to feel those feelings under those circumstances. I began to learn that these things came about through the process of taking the 12 steps after three and a half years sober. I came to find out that it really isn't a self-help program, that the only help that we're going to get is that that's so magnanimously bestowed upon us by the folks and by God himself. And when I left that Brownwood conference, I resolved to do one thing. I resolved to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and to do the things that it called for and to believe the things that I read in there and that they applied to me and that it was talking about my life. And that I was not going to read it analytically or with the use of logic and reason, but I was just going to read it for what it said to me at the time. And then I would reread it again. And I would reread it then after that. And after that. And after that. And still today I read, I read it, and it's strange how many times that I find that, that from the last reading somebody has stolen it away and rewritten part of it because I swear there's things in there that I've not found before. I don't claim to have uh, mastered the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous by any means, but I have read it uh, many, many times with absolute utter fascination and, and with absolute awe and with the real belief that, that people who put the pen to that were inspired people that knew all of the inner workings of the alcoholic because it's not had to be it's not had to be touched for lo these many years. And anything that can stand the test in this modern age of all of the love for newness and so forth 
and can incite nobody's interest in changing anything about it has got to be something it's a gift from from God himself and I really uh, I really believe that it is and when I began to to do these things uh, strange things began to happen I know to the extent that I began to do the steps for some reason or other the it seemed to measure the same extent that I began to go back and dispel all of the information which I had gathered at the time that I was nine or ten. And it seemed as almost one suggestion after another was met head on by AA and the thought was dispelled. That it's not bad to trust. It's not bad to believe. Because only in believing somebody else have I got a ghost of a chance of helping that person. I can't help that person really by rejecting them with a great deal of unbelief. It may be that they're wrong. I've seen people that perhaps can work it the other way around. I, I have to do it the way it seems comfortable for me. And the way I stay sober might get other people drunk, and the way somebody else stays sober might get me drunk. Uh, some of the things I hear said in, in AA meetings give me some fright, not because I think that they're wrong, but just because I might commence to believe it for me. And it's a softer, easier way. And for so long, I was kind of like the guy that went from Petersburg over to Brownfield to uh, do some playing poker one one time and uh, round through 75 miles southwest of Petersburg. And, and this fellow said, uh, walking back home that night, <laughs> he said, uh, I came to this long trestle and he said it was, uh, it was long and uh, said it was dark and I got about halfway across it and he said uh, a train was bearing down on me and said I I couldn't go forward or couldn't go backwards said I just did the only thing that I knew to do said I just dropped down through the ties and just held on there until that train passed over and said but it was a long train and it took a long time for it to go go across and uh, he said the time it went across said uh, my arms were so tired I couldn't uh, pull myself back up. I said, I didn't know how far I washed the ground. So I said, I did the only thing that I could think to do. I said, I just hung there to morning. <laughs> and uh, he said, when, when it got light enough to see, he said, I saw my feet were only about a foot from the ground. I said, maybe it's damn that I just hung there all day. <laughs> I used to, I used to hang on to old ideas and uh, and the result was nailed until I let go absolutely. And there's two things about the step one that that really come to impress me and and I can't quote them exactly but they have the, the just something like this that. 
we find that our admissions of powerlessness can become the bedrock upon which a happy and useful life may be built. Admissions of powerlessness. Well, I'd, I'd learned that really that you just never said quit. You know, you just you always geared up to do better. You know, and, and you when you got up in the morning, you thrust your feet into the boots, you know, and you rose up on your haunches and you said, I can whip the world. Boy, I did that to complete discord for years and years and years. I got up and geared up to do battle every day and, uh, and I lost them hands down. This told me what I used to feel like back at the time when I was eight or nine. Back at the time when when I was so comfortable with everybody because I wasn't preoccupied with self. I wasn't preoccupied with going out and whipping anything. I was just so enamored with the world. And the other thing it says is that the principle that we will find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat is the taproot on which our society has grown and flowered. Now here we've got the bedrock upon which a thing sits, and then we've got the taproot which feeds it. Both are admissions of powerlessness. And the principle is that principle which we have to practice in all of our affairs in step 12. So I have to transfer that the principle that, that I'll find no enduring strength until I first admit complete defeat has got to become the principle that I utilize in the practice of step 12 in all my affairs. And it's kept me from trying to run the thing alone for many times up until the time that I run into brutal disappointment and realize that I can't. And then have to get down and surrender to God and One time I was nine years sober. I went to Kansas to a conference. Clancy I was there. Clancy spent some time with me kindly one Saturday afternoon because I <coughs> I had a dilemma. And it was like a power. And I asked Clancy about it. I explained the whole situation to him. I said, Clancy, tell me. What the heck am I doing wrong? He said, I think that I probably might help, but he said, I know a man for sure who can. Because he said, a good friend of mine and a good friend of yours in California has had a similar experience. I was trying to get out from a business in which I had grown completely uncomfortable. I felt like people were freezing me in there in, in, into this business, and I had lost all contact with a higher power concerning this. So he called up, went back to his room, and he called Chuck C. And explained to Chuck the fact that I wanted to talk to him. And I briefly expressed to Chuck what my problem was, and Chuck said, I understand 
He said, I can identify with what you have said. And he said, let me tell you what helped me. He said, I was driving uh, when I was 11 years sober. And he said, I had gone out and gotten in my car with the express purpose of resolving a problem or else getting drunk. And he said, I was afraid of what I was going to do. And he said, from somewhere, these words came to me. The measure of my anxiety was the measure of my distance from God. And I said, Chuck, you just answered my question. And I... uh, got down on my knees and again and took the first three steps right there. The next morning, Chuck, I mean, uh, Clancy, uh, we'd been downtown that afternoon. He bought some trinkets for his wife and for his grandchildren. And uh, he was missing them the next morning. And... So he said, well, uh, I said, I'm packing up. He said, now, give me my, give me my deal. I said, Clancy, I don't have them. So he, he went on back, and a little bit he came back. He said, oh, he said, really, he said, I'm, uh, he said, I haven't got time to play games. He said, uh, give me my, my deal so I can go ahead and pack. And I said, Clancy, I, I'm serious. I really don't have them. He said, well, I hate to go home with, without them. And I said, I bought those for my grandkids. So I said, well, let's go back downtown. Maybe... Uh, Maybe, maybe that store might be open. So we went downtown, and as we drove up, the manager was just opening up the store. He had come down just for a moment for something. We walked in, and uh, Clancy said, uh, I was in here yesterday and made a purchase, said, but I'd made a purchase across the street, and I wonder if I might have left a little package here in your store. The man said, I don't know. But said, we can see. He looked down under the counter and said, do you see it down there? And Clancy said, yes, in that black sack. That's it. So the man gave it to him. And uh, on the way out, I said, you know, it's real strange, isn't it, how AA works? He said, yes, it, it really is. But he said, it's not the way you're thinking about I said, what do you mean? He said, "Uh, when you go back and the trinket isn't there and you don't have to drink, that's when you know AA is working. I thought, that's so true. I began to look at the things, the uh, the gifts that we get and... uh, But so much things are not really that way. It's the things that set us back on our haunches. And yet we don't have to drink when we have absolutely no choice at all as to whether we drink or not. It disturbs me when people get up and say, I had a choice this morning as to whether I drank or not, because I know I didn't. 
I didn't have any choice whether I drank or not. I'm an alcoholic. My natural state is drunk. And I really did love it. I really did love being drunk. <laughs> I just positively loved it. And I'd be that way today if it still worked. Don't let me kid you one iota. I loved being drunk. Ooh, and I did love it. God, I, I just feel my muscles relaxing. Right now. But, you know, the, the great stumbling block for me is this thing called pride, this, this thing called ego, this, this being a self-enthroned egotist. You know, there's only, only two people that can sit on the throne within us. That's God, ourselves. And when I sit on my own throne, I, I make all of the, the wrong decisions. I'm kind of like the old cowboy was at the, that got drunk over in Larry Langtree's country over at Judge Roy Bean and, was, uh, and the old miner came in there leading a, a mule. And uh, so his cowboy staggered outside about that time, put his gun out and began to shoot down the feet of this old miner and said, Dance, give us a dance, Grandpa. So we went kind of jigged up. Oh, dance better than that. Boom, boom, boom. So the old man kind of picks it up a little bit and he said, more than that, wham, wham, six shots. So the old man quit dancing and reached over his mule and picked out a long rifle and shoved it up in that old boy's face and said, Sonny, did you ever kiss a mule's rear? <laughs> the old boy said, no, but I've always wanted to. <laughs> I was about like that cowboy. I made a heck of a lot of bad decisions and so forth. <laughs> Johnny's talking about the rising up and looking down on people. I was pretty good at that as long as they, as long as they quailed. But when she was on the other foot, I was kind of like the old boy that that was in there bar out west and, uh, and, and a fellow came and painted his horse green while he was in there drinking and he, he, he came to and there his horse was painted green and boy he was raising all the manners of cane and he was going to kill the man that did that and so forth if you just point him out to him just point him out I'll, he was going to really fix him up so uh, he said I sure do want to talk to that man he said I want to tell him plenty so the old boy got up over there. He was about 6'6", six, six, and he had a couple of pistols on. He said, I painted your horse green. He said, what do you got to say to me? He said, I just wanted to tell you that the first coat's dry. 
the part is a real is a real, is a real thing that's uh, that's it basically had me uh, doing things that I really never did want to do. It had me defending ideas that that I'd long since ceased to realize were false. It kept me defending arguments and so forth that I knew good and well that I'd lost a long time ago. Yet my pride just would not let go. It created a great lot of discomfort in me, but yet at the same time it's something I couldn't seem to do without. And it's something I can't seem to do without today. It's a, it, it has its way with me, and the only chance that I have is to try to surrender this to God as, a, as one enormous character defects. And I think, for me, all of the rest of the things, and I, and I haven't done everything that everybody else has done, but I can tell you this, that I have thought about doing anything that anybody, and I've had a lot of people take the fifth step with me, and I have thought about doing everything that I have ever heard people talk about. It's the fact that the opportunity didn't come, or the necessity was not there. It wasn't the fact that I was too good to. It wasn't the fact that I was too strong. Or it wasn't the fact that I could resist or anything else. It was just the fact that it just never did happen, but it wasn't through any good part on my behavior. So pride is a thing that, uh, that is enormously wrong with me. I think it is, it is the defect of character which far exceeds all of the rest of the stuff, the, the thievery or any of the, uh, the sexual deviations or anything else that a person can become involved in and, and, and which I did become involved in. And it's far greater because I think that it really basically is a, a spiritual character defect. And it's something that I was always taught to have. So it looks to me like, Jack, you'd have too much pride to have done that, and that's the very reason I did, was because of pride was dictating uh, its terms. And step five and step four give great amount of rehabilitation insofar as as step as, uh, as pride and ego are concerned because confession uh, is something that is inherently good for the human being and the fact that we express it to another person means that we have finally irrevocably committed it out loud to a human person and this is the only time that that I couldn't always take it back and let my mind rationalize it away through the process of, of being obedient to, to ego and pride. And then the sixth and seventh step are the steps that I really love so much. And they're because I said these are the steps that separate the men from the boys. And I think that this is basically true because for the, all of my adult years I had utilized all of the things that are defenses that pride requires to defend it, such as anger, resentment, judgment, criticism.
these are things that that pride demands that we use to to defend itself against other persons. And it's the reason I never let anybody really get close, nor did I want them to really get close. Pride doesn't like people to get close enough to you to really become a confidant. Pride would have us always being standoffish so that we never confess to anything because it knows so long as we don't confess to another human being and to God that we haven't a chance in God's world of really ever having our life be changed by higher power. But whenever it gets down to the point where do I do it? Do I do I get down on my knees and do I ask God really and truly to, to take away the defenses that I have built up and, and am I really willing to walk out there naked in this world into a hostile environment without any protection and depend only on God's protection? And if the answer is yes, then we take step six and seven. If the answer is no, we don't. And I've taken step six and seven many, many times, and I continue to have to do it because I'm not really sure that I'm ever going to get rid of the character defects. But one thing has worked for me, and it's worked wonderfully well, and that has been sometimes eliminating the need to utilize these instruments of torture for the other person in defense of itself in defense of pride. <clears throat> Sometimes when people now put upon me, I can feel compassion, as I've seen other people do. I can really understand that that person has a need to hurt, the same as I used to have a need to hurt, and I can feel such sadness for it. Because I, I know now that there is a better way. And I know now that that person doesn't have that better way. And I, I can know now that that person is responding with everything in the world that he has with doing the very best that he can under the circumstances. And that's something that even I have been able to feel compassion about. I have been ridiculed in public and I didn't resent it I didn't take exception to it. I didn't have to fight back. I didn't have to go and try to explain. I apologized for doing something which I had been instructed to do. And I've, I've never yet felt any need to go and tell these persons that I was absolutely innocent of the charge that they publicly made against me. I didn't even think about suing them, although this is the, the age of suits, apparently. Now, that wasn't Jack Power. Jack Power would have had me instantly gotten to my feet and said, it's not my fault. I did exactly as my boss instructed. If my boss is wrong, then charge him. Don't charge me. But I sat there and I felt so sorry for my boss because I saw his face color and he was so ashamed. And I felt so, so sad for that man. I've not felt angry with him to this day. And I thank God for those feelings because anger always made me uh, feel bad. 
these are blessings that uh, that have come my way just by doing a few simple things that call for an, an AA. And uh, a good friend of all of ours who's died. But he, uh, he made a talk one time at uh, Longview and I heard I heard it, and it was one of the most beautiful talks I've ever heard. His name was Burton. And he said, uh, if you don't think AA works for you, try it. And if you don't think God will help you, ask him. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jack. Will you come back up here, please? We have a gift for you from the Canyon Conference. Thank you so much. Save a wretch like me. 